Hello and thanks for streaming this episode from ACF Church. Our hope is that this word would encourage you to walk closer with God and with your local church. We hope you consider partnering in the work God's doing here by joining a life group, serving, and giving. If you'd like to give financially to the mission of ACF Church, you can do so safely on our website at acfak.org or by texting the amount to 907-341-4213. Now prepare your hearts to hear God's word. Church. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors, and I'm super excited to be here with you guys this morning. Uh, if it's your first Sunday with us, if you're a guest of ours this morning, I just want to say welcome. Um, it is great to have you guys join us this morning. Um, thank you guys for coming to 9 a.m. That's awesome. It's filling up in this service, which is great. 11 a.m. is beyond full, which is an amazing um, issue that we're having right now. And so we also have a fantastic Wednesday night service I'd love to invite you guys to as 9 a.m. continues to fill up. But seriously, like summertime, you know, while your friends are packing up to go home because they got hit church Sunday morning, you're like, already been! So come to Wednesday night service. It's awesome. We'll, we even give you hot dogs and feed you and stuff. But um, it is great to be here with you guys this morning. Uh, I, I love the opportunity that I have to be with you guys in, in and we're going to jump right in this morning. We're in a series called God Problems. And over the last several weeks, we've been talking about problems that people have with God. And we've even had a phone number up on the screen where people have been texting us in their God problems. And we have gotten dozens and dozens and dozens of God problems. Um, and so much so that we've even adjusted and changed things that we were planning to talk about because you guys wanted to talk about something else. Which I love that we're able to really tailor these for the questions that you guys have been asking. And so we want to dive right in this morning. We got, I got two questions I'm going to read. They're kind of in the same category, but they're kind of asking two different things. The first one is this. I believe it is, and that it is, is the Bible is what they're talking about. I believe it is an excellent historical account. But it was written by a human, and humans interpret things from their own perspective. What is lost in translation from the original text? Great question. Maybe you've had this question before. We've gotten a lot of these types of questions being texted into us. And then we also had ones like this. The Bible is another problem. I believe that the books are written and speak truth, but with archaeologists finding other books, why would the Catholic Church choose not to the, include them? Another very common question that comes our way, and even in that question, um, there's a lot of assumptions in that question right there. And so we want to dive into those assumptions. We want to dive into this topic. So uh, just so you know, um, 
I hope you're ready to get your geek on. Like, I am, I've been geeking out, getting excited um, to teach this to us this morning. I, this, I love studying this type of stuff. It is important that we know this stuff. But I want to let you guys know that right off the top, I am not going to answer all your questions this morning. All right, so I hope you're not too disappointed. Um, I don't have enough time um, to talk about all of the things about the Bible. Today we're talking about problems with the Bible. And we're not going to answer all your questions. In fact, with all of these sermons that we've been walking through with God problems, and really each and every week, week in and week out, I would hope that this would not be the end of the conversation for you. I would hope that Sunday mornings would not be it for you, but that this would be the beginning of conversations that would happen all week long. Our heart at ACF is that every single person who comes would be involved in community and in a group in some way, shape, or form to continue these conversations, to wrestle through these hard topics, and that you guys can do it together as community. And so, we're gonna, but we're going we're gonna to talk some this morning about the Bible. We're going to tackle some issues. We're going to tackle some problems um, and questions that you guys have. So as we begin, I want to talk about this book. Now I want to talk about it first as just straightforward as I possibly can. In other words, right now as we begin, I don't really care what you think about what is written inside of it, the message, the meaning, but what we're going to talk about are some factual things about this book. Because even now, I think there's a lot of people that misunderstand what this book actually is. Let's start with the word Bible. <laughs> what does the word Bible actually mean? The word Bible just means books, a collection of books. That this is actually 66 individual books that have been put together, books or writings is a better term, to, to form our Bible. You see, I think that, I believe that biblical literacy right now is at an all-time low. Biblical literacy is an all-time low. We do not know what is in this book, and we really don't know how we got it. In fact, I was talking to someone last week, and, and I was asking them, as I knew I was going to be talking about this subject, I said, hey, how did we get the Bible? And they're like, well, what do you mean? I, I got mine at Barnes & Noble. How did you get yours? They, you know, Amazon? Okay. So it depends on if there's a sale or not. No, I'm like, no, but how did we get the Bible? You've been reading this your whole life. You've staked your future on this thing. How did, it, how did we get it? Uh, I have no idea. I guess I've never really thought about that before. And, th and that's probably how a lot of people are. And, and that's fine. But the problem is uh, you might get questions one day. The problem is there's a lot of people that disagree with how we ended up with this thing. And we should know some truth about it. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. So again, I want to start off with just some facts about this. This book is 66 individual books or writings put together to create our Bible. It was written over 1,500 years. It took over 1,500 years for those writings to be written. And in those 1,500 years, it really covers about 4,000 years of human history are covered in this book. Um, historians, people who study ancient literature, Christian and, and, and secular alike would agree that this is one of the most unique books ever assembled. One of the most unique books ever put together. Never mind what its content is, but just the uniqueness of the writings and how we have it and where it came from is one of the most unique, if not the most unique book ever put together. And let me explain why. A lot of this information, you can... You, 
you can find, it's important to research these things, things, books like Josh McDowell's evidence to, that demands a verdict, more evidence that demands a verdict, great academic books to look into, to research, it's where I've got a lot of this information, but here's some facts about the Bible. The Bible was written by more than 40 different authors from every walk of life, from kings, military leaders, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, tax collectors, poets, musicians, statesmen, scholars, shepherds, and more. You see, the Bible wasn't just written by a certain type of person. It wasn't just kings that put the Bible together. It wasn't just philosophers that put the Bible together. When I say put together, I meant in writing. It wasn't just peasants that did the writings. It wasn't just, it was such a variety of different people. We see things like Moses was a political leader, a judge. He was trained in the universities of Egypt. David was a king, a poet, a musician, a shepherd, and a warrior. Joshua was a military general. Daniel was a prime minister. Solomon was a king and a philosopher. Luke, a physician and a historian. Peter, a fisherman. Matthew, a tax collector. Paul, a rabbi. See, people from all different kinds of walks of lives were the ones who did the writings for the Bible. And the Bible was written from all over the planet, three different continents. We have writings from the Bible in Africa, Europe, and Asia. Right, so the Bible was not, okay, we could say, yeah, the Bible is written by all these different types of people, but it was all from one region, right? No, it was from all over the world. It wasn't just one region where we get our writings from. It was from three different continents of where we find our writings. Some other just things to know about the Bible is written in three different languages. Hebrew, which is the brunt of the Old Testament. Some Aramaic is found in the Old Testament. And then also Greek, which is primarily what the New Testament was written in. Something, other, something else that is really important to know and understand is that the, the, the writing styles of the Bible. You see, the Bible is not just written in one type of literary form, that it's in several different literary forms. And, and for us today in our Western kind of cultures and mindsets, we don't necessarily quite get this. We kind of do. We understand literary form in like 180 characters, right, on, on Twitter or, you know, in a, in a blurb on, online. But... But for the Bible was written in some very different literary forms. And we, we, what we find in the Bible are things like poetry, historical narrative, song, romance. We even find satire in the Bible. Biography, autobiography, prophecy, parable, allegory. See, we need to understand that the Bible is not just written in, in some like straightforward just type of writing. That it, it's full of different types of writing. And this is just a side note that if, if, as you begin to really dive in to study the Bible, it's important to understand these literary forms. To understand that there's parable and there's hyperbole and there's all these things in the Bible. And it, just a book, a great book to pick up to help begin to understand as we read the Bible is a, Bible, is a book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. So just throwing that out there if you're someone who wants to really learn how to get deep into study of the scriptures, that's a great book. But the thing that makes the Bible the most unique of everything, we got all these authors, you know, over a thousand years, 1,500 years of people writing, all this different stuff. The thing that makes the Bible the most unique, really, from any other book, is that after all of those facts come out, what we find in Scripture is that it has one common theme. One common thread. From beginning to end, there is one thread that goes throughout all of the writings of the Bible. That there's one point, one purpose, and one focus of the Bible. Josh McDowell writes this. The most important thing we see 
of all the people described in the Bible with all its main characters throughout the pages, it all points to one, the living true God coming to earth through Jesus Christ. It's amazing that over 1,500 years, these writers did not know each other. Some of them did, but for the most part, they didn't know each other. They didn't know they were writing the Bible, right? They're just writing different things down. Some of it told by God, the majority of it not. It was from their perspective on things. But they're writing these things down, and over 1,500 years of writing, what we have is one focused point, that the true God came to earth as Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but it is difficult to get 40 people to agree on one thing, right? Like 40 different people. I don't know if you have an office of a big, you know, work maybe for a big company of 40 people to agree on one project to do. Then you got to agree on how to do that one project, right? Maybe you come from a big family, and maybe you just come from a, fa- a small family. But how do we agree on one thing? What's for dinner? Where are we going for dinner, right? I'll see you next week. <laughs> you guys can figure that out, right? People just, when you get big groups of people together to all focus and agree on one thing is very rare and a difficult process. But for these people, that most of them not even know each other and how everything points to one true living God. And that's just, that's just the facts of the Bible. That's what it's written about. That is how we find the writings in it. So I want to talk a bit then, how did we get the Bible? Because how we got the Bible is one area that we find under attack on the Bible and on Scripture. And let me just say this. When I say under attack, the Word of God has been under attack since the very beginning. And for thousands of years, kings and philosophers and governments have been trying to attack the Word of God and tear it down. And out of all those things, only one thing has been remaining. And so I am not afraid of attacks on the Bible. I'm not afraid of evidences that are now new and found that nothing new under the sun on this. Nothing new. But we do want to be knowledgeable. We do want to understand some of these problems and issues that people have with the Bible. And so in, in how we got the Bible, a lot of people understand maybe a little bit of the process to it, and they take that little process and go, look, there's problems with this tiny little picture of this process I have, so we got to throw the whole thing out. And to be honest, there's a lot of misunderstandings on how we actually received the Bible. And I, I, I don't really have a lot of time to talk about them, but I, I do want to mention probably the biggest misconception about how we got the Bible and that is through something called the Council of Nicaea. In in the year 325, Constantine brought a a bunch of church leaders together at the Council of Nicaea. Now, it it is a common thing to understand that, or is a common thing believed that at the Council of Nicaea, Constantine came to them and said, look, give me a Bible. And under Constantine's watch, all these church leaders wanting to please Constantine put together these books to, to decide what was going to be the Bible. And really, it came down to Constantine going, look, I like that writing. I don't like that writing. Let's leave that one out. Let's put this one in. And then there's this known fact that Constantine asked for 55 Bibles to be spread out through Constantinople. And this is where we got our Bible today. This is what a lot of people believe. The problem is, it's not true. This is so believed that this is actually written into books like the Da Vinci Code. If you've ever read it or seen the movie, right? This is how they explain that we Christians got their Bible. 
But the problem is it's just not true. There is absolutely, actually zero evidence that at the Council of Nicaea they talked about the Bible at all. In fact, the purpose of the Council of Nicaea was to bring together church leaders to have one common language to describe the divinity of Christ. It would, not to, 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 not to say the divinity, the divinity of Christ was true or not true. No, they believed it was true. The purpose was to come with one common language, which now we have the Nicene Creed, which is a beautiful piece of writing. And I highly suggest you read it, go through it, understand it. But it, in, there's just no evidence that they ever talked about the Bible at the Council of Nicaea. And in fact, Constantine asking for 55 Bibles to be made actually happened about eight years after the Council of Nicaea. And there's no evidence that he actually ever received those Bibles. And so that is just a common belief about how we got the Bible that is it's just not true. A lot of people come under attack on that. Well, we can't trust it because it was Constantine that put it together. So how did we get the Bible? How did we get our Bible? Well, the process of, of, of getting our Bible, the process of getting this book is called the process of canonization. That we canonized the writings of, that we call scripture. And, and, and canonize simply means standard. The term simply means standard. So to understand what is the canon, the canon is this. The canon is the accepted list of books or the accepted list of writings. These are the writings that are accepted as, as inspired by God. And, and these are the writings that we say are scripture. And that's all the canon is. And so to understand the canonization process, we need to understand one big thing right off the top, and that is this, is that there is actually two canons. There is the canon of the Old Testament and the canon of the New Testament. So this is one canon, Old Testament, and this is another canon, New Testament. Two different canons. And, and really, by the time Jesus came around, the Old Testament had been canonized. In other words, the writings that we call the Old Testament were accepted as divine, accepted as inspired by God, by his people. That was when Jesus came around. He, he affirmed that process to several times over and over and over again. Some pretty cool ways. And, and, and if you're Jewish, you would not call this the Old Testament. You would call this the Tanakh, which is your Bible. And so, but there was processes to that. So here's some of the process of the canonization um, of the Bible. And they're, they're what I would call litmus tests. Beyond process, a better term maybe is a litmus test for it. Here's some of the litmus tests for the canonization. It's kind of heavy right now, these first few on the Old Testament. Was the book written by a prophet of God? Was the writer confirmed by acts of God? And how are they confirmed? Were frequent acts of miracles. So we see like in Exodus 4 that Moses is confirmed as a prophet of God because he has all these miracles that go in front of him and behind him. And he's like doing all these miracles to show God sent me. And so were these books that were written, were they written by prophets of God? Do we know they're prophets of God by the acts of miracles that were surrounding by the writers? Does the message tell the truth about God? Right? We find these writings, and, and do, they, do, they, do they confirm what we already know? Do they confirm, like, we have all of these writings that say, God is truth. We have all of these writings that speak this, and then we have this one writing over here that kind of is not exactly in line with that. Well, we'd say, that's not inspired. Now, maybe the writing, maybe the writing in whole, it's, yeah, it's good, good material, you know, 
good Saturday morning reading, but we wouldn't call it inspired by God? Does it come with the power of God? Man, Scripture bears the power of God, and we see it over and over again. And was it accepted by the people of God? Did the people who knew God, who experienced God, who walked with God in the desert, who, who, who saw, you know, the, the, the walls of Jericho fall down, like these people who are getting these writings from these prophets, were they accepted from the people of God? And then we jump into more of the New Testament canon. And when there's attacks on the canon, it's typically the New Testament. It's typically the New Testament that we find it in. So what were some of the litmus tests for the New Testament. One was, was the author an apostle or have a close connection with apostle? In other words, was it first-hand experience or second-hand experience? If it was third, fourth, fifth, sixth, well, it might be great writing, but we're not going to look and, and ex- see it as inspired by God. It, the writings of the New Testament, they're first-hand accounts, and some of them are second-hand accounts of Peter teaching people like, hey, this is what God said. This is what Jesus said. Does, again, does the message tell the truth about God? Is the book accepted by the body of Christ at large? Remember, in the early church, in the time of Acts, they're passing around these letters that, that we now call our Bible today. Are these letters being accepted? Are they, be, are they going, yeah, what you're writing is the same thing of what you're writing is the same thing that you're writing? Okay, and you guys all knew Jesus. So we, yeah, we're accepting all of these did the books contain doctrine and orthodox teaching? Again, they're passing around. Are, are these matching up or are they all con- conflicting each other? And did the book bear evidence of high moral and spiritual values that would reflect the work of the Holy Spirit? In other words, we see in the New Testament, man, there is a calling for holiness. There is a calling for the church to do things that the church cannot do without the working and the power of the Holy Spirit. So that was the canonization process. You see, and this canonization process, it took over a thousand years to end up with what we call our completed list. Now, the majority of the books were accepted. Like, when I say over a thousand years, we, there was like four or five books that were like, okay, well, is this inspired by God? We're trying to figure this out. But for the most part, it was mostly all accepted right away. In fact, we even see it in the book of Acts. We see it in the New Testament, the canonization process beginning. We have Peter affirming Paul. Peter writes to the church, and he's like, guys, the stuff that Paul's writing you, it is inspired by God. Listen to it. And then we have Paul affirming Luke. Hey, the stuff that Luke is writing, yes, it's inspired by God. Listen to it. And so the canonization process started at the very beginning of the church. And and to understand what the canonization process is, let's take a minute and and listen to this. We need to understand it. It was not humans. It was not man going yes and no. It was man recognizing, wow, this is inspired by God. I love what Josh McDowell writes right here. It is important to note that the church did not create the canon. It did not determine which books would be called scripture, the inspired word of God. Instead, the church recognized or discovered which books had been inspired from their inception. Stated another way, a book is not the word of God because it is accepted by the people of God. Rather, it was accepted by the people of God because it is the word of God. That is, to give the book its divine authority, not the, 
That is, God gives the book its divine authority, not the people of God. They merely recognize the divine authority which God gives to it. So we need to understand that this whole process of coming together with an accepted list, a standard list of books, was just recognizing, God, what are you doing? What are you about? What have you inspired? And if you have inspired it, we submit to it. And so that was the canonization process. So we're going to move on from that now. What about problems with the Bible? We've got a lot of these types of questions coming. What about problems with the Bible? A couple weeks ago, uh, I had a teenager texting me. It was early, it was early in the morning, it was about 9, 10 o'clock, and all of a sudden I just, my phone starts blowing up with these texts. Josh, what about this problem with the Bible? And starts texting me. And my first response was, aren't you supposed to be in school? Right? I am. I'm in the middle of class. Okay. Okay, that makes sense now. Okay. It's the problem, but okay, go ahead and ask your question. And so, well, isn't, isn't this a problem with the Bible? And she starts texting me her question. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's very common belief is a problem with the Bible, but the problem with that question is there's a misunderstanding in this perspective. And I start typing this answer, and all of a sudden, boom, well, here's another problem. Boom, here's another. Boom, here's I'm like, what's going on? Like, slow down. I'm like, what is going on? And she says, look, I'm in a debate with this kid in my class, and he's just on Google, Googling problems with the Bible, and he's just throwing them at me left and right. I'm on my toes, man. I'm trying to, like, knock him out of the park, but he's coming at me too quick, Josh. Help me out. And I'm like, okay. Now I see this picture clearly. I'm like, okay, this makes sense. And I'm like, well, what questions does this person really have? And she's like, what do you mean? I said, tell him to get off Google. Tell him to think for himself for just a moment. You know, but what we've done is we've made Google the ultimate authority on life, right? That and Wikipedia. Wikipedia and Google, like, if it says it there, you know it's true. You know, scripture, eh, but Google, oh yeah. And so this person was just Googling problems with the Bible. What this was telling me is, honestly, from the top, they had no interest in really what truth was. They just wanted to, like, show that there's problems with the Bible. Okay. So I text this girl, I said, look, he clearly is not interested in actual, tr you know, truth. Like, you're not even able, he's not l allowing you to answer the questions. So just do this. Just Google problems with problems with the Bible. Then you guys can have your own Google war in class and have fun with that. Oh, great idea. Okay. <laughs> now, if this person wants to have a conversation, let's, you know, let's get together. But, you know, you can Google problems with the Bible. There are things that are out there that seem inconsistent, and so I want to talk about some of those things. Now, before we dive into this, I want us to learn a term today. This is kind of a theological term. We're going to have some school right now. It's called hypostatic union. Hypostatic union. In fact, let's say that together. Hypostatic union. Good job. You guys are smarter already. I'm impressed. Hypostatic. <laughs> can spell it, they'll take too long. So, hypostatic union is simply this. It is the coming together of divine and humanity. So, 99% of the time, when people talk about the hypostatic union, they're talking about the hypostatic union of Christ. That Christ was fully God, and he was fully man. He was not 50% God and 50% man. He was 100% God and 100% man. And there's a mystery in that but we call that the hypostatic union. Now, there is also another hypostatic union. 
and that is our scriptures. That our scripture is fully God, fully 100% inspired by God, yet it is also fully man. It is written from the perspective of humanity. When, when, when the scriptures were being written, God did not guide the hand of the holding the pen that wrote out the scriptures. Now, there are a few times in scriptures where God says, write this down, and it is exactly dictated what God said, but those are actually far and few between in scripture. The majority of it is the perspective of the people, and we talked about the different types of writing. So, for an example, take the book of Joshua, right? Joshua is out, and he's about to go to battle. He goes, and he's kind of scouting out the battlefield, and all of a sudden, boom, this warrior shows up in front of him. And Joshua's like, look, are you on our side, or are you on the enemy's side? Like, he's about ready to go, and this guy's like, son, I am a commander of the army of the Lord. I'm on no one's side. Joshua's like, okay. <laughs> and what does he do? He goes back to his camp, and he writes down, I better remember this, right? Like, don't want to forget this one, and he writes down what happened. It's fully in his perspective, his human perspective, and yet it, he is fully inspired to go write this from God. Fully God and fully human. You see, we, we need to not be afraid of the hypostatic union of Scripture. Greg Boyd writes it this way, an honest examination of Scripture leads to the conclusion that the Bible is thoroughly inspired, but also thoroughly human. The human element in Scripture reflects the limitations and fallibility that are part of the human perspective in all human thinking. You see, but the truth of the matter is, even though there is human pers perspective in Scripture, the theme, the point, the narrative never, ever changes. It never, ever changes. So let's, let's break this down for a minute. Let's take a, 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 an example at one of these problems, okay? I think this was even one that this kid was, you know, Googling and came up. And, and this one is, is kind of a popular one, and yet when you really break it down and look at it, it's very insignificant. And yet for so many people, this can be such a big problem. We're going to go to the book of Job, and, and if you don't know Job, he's, he's kind of had everything torn away from him. Family, wealth, just anything of value has been torn away from him. And he's, he's in this, he, he's in conflict, and he's like, man, do I, do I curse God and die? Which all his friends are like, you, you are cursed, man. Just curse God and die. Like, those are awesome friends. Keep them around. But he's at this place, and he's like, he doesn't know what to do. And this guy comes around named Elihu. And Elihu starts talking to Job. He's like, look, Job, God is God. God is majestic. God is powerful. God will do what God wants to do. And he starts listing off all these things of how majestic God is. And we read in Job 37, 18. He says, can you, like him, spread out the skies hard as a cast metal mirror. Can you, Job, like him, God, spread out the skies hard as a cast metal mirror? Well, we got a problem here. Now, I know the flat earth theory is gaining ground and becoming popular again, but I have not heard the cast metal mirror theory, you know, gaining traction on the internet. People are not going outside and going, you know what? I bet you that is a hard cast metal mirror. 
There's no ozone layer. There's no space beyond. We are like boom, trapped in here with this hard cast metal mirror. So some people would look at this and go, see, major problem. Bible's wrong. Clearly we know the sky's on hard cast metal mirror, so Eli Hugh was wrong, therefore the Bible's wrong. Those are some major you know, assumptions and conclusions to leap from to get to that point. But when we really look at this, what is Eli Hugh doing? What is he saying? He is trying to express to Job the glory, the magnitude, and the majesty of God. Is he wrong in that? Of course he's not. Is his pre-modern human understanding of the earth wrong in saying that it's a hard cast metal mirror? Okay, yeah, it is. We know it's not. Now, is the Bible wrong? Of course it's not wrong. We can't allow something like this from a, from a pre-modern understanding of earth, right? David says things like the earth was pulled onto its four corners. So David's exclaiming that it's a, David's a flat earther, right? And he's saying it's square. We know at least we're sure one of those is wrong. See, there's these issues, these problems in the Bible. But when you really break down to what is being said and what is being understood in the narrative of Scripture, it changes nothing. It changes nothing. They are, it is nonsense to look at this and go, see, you can't trust the Bible. Really? I mean, and we don't even know. Eli Hugh, maybe that was just a saying of the day. You'd go outside and it was a beautiful sunny day. Like, man, that hard cast metal mirror is gorgeous today. Yeah, who knows? A thousand years from now, people are going to go, those people were insane. They thought when it rained, cats and dogs actually fell out of the sky. <laughs> Crazy people thought that. We don't know, really, like, was that a saying of the day or is that their understanding? It was probably their understanding. But does that make anything wrong in this text? Of course not. You see, these problems become monumental when we turn the Bible into something that it is not. You see, some of these things can be explained away. Some of them can be explained away. And some of them can't. Some of them can't. You can, you can Google, you can find problems in the Bible, and some of them just cannot be explained away. But it doesn't change the truth. It doesn't change the narrative. John Piper writes this, Limited ability, personal bias, personal sin, cultural assumptions often obscure biblical texts. The work of the Holy Spirit is essential. See, when we read the Bible, we assume a lot culturally, right? Our own personal bias, we can't get past it. And so, so many of us, we assume that when these books were written, these letters are written, that they're thinking with a Western mindset. Are you kidding me? They were nowhere close to thinking with the same mentality that we think. They have an Eastern, ancient Eastern mindset, completely different than ours. But when we attack it with our Western way of thinking, oh, it all falls apart, seemingly. And yeah, there are problems that just honestly can't be explained away. But our minor problems, they become major when we make the Bible into something it's not. And that is this. We need to understand, you guys can write this down. The Bible brings us to God. 
it is not God. The Bible brings us to God, it is not God. In other words, if the Bible was God, then yeah, there could be no problems in it because there are no problems in God. But the Bible is not God. It brings us to the feet of God. It brings us to the throne room of God. It itself is not God. Here's ACF's statement of faith about the Bible. The Bible was written by human authors under the supernatural guidance of the Holy Spirit. It is the supreme source of truth for Christian beliefs about living. Because it is inspired by God, it is truth without error. For those of you who have been waiting since the beginning of this sermon, since we heard we're talking about the Bible, here is Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and of marrow, and discerning the thought and the intentions of the heart. And for the other half of the room that have been waiting for 2 Timothy 3.16, here you go. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So what is scripture? What is the Bible? We see that the Bible is alive, it is active, it is sharp, it pierces, it divides, it discerns, it is breathed out by God, it teaches, it reproves, it corrects, it trains in righteousness, it equips for every good work, and there is so much more to say about it, but we don't have the time. This is what scripture is. Three words you can write down. The first thing is this. We believe that Scripture is inspired. It is God-breathed. Just as God breathed life into humanity, we believe that God breathed life into Scripture. Scripture is God-breathed. It is inspired. That's what makes it completely divine, inspired by God. We believe that the Word of God is infallible, which means it's right, it's true, and it is truth. It is right, it is true, and it is truth. That we stake our entire eternity on the words in this book. And we do it because it is truth. Because it is inspired by God, not because we say it is. And finally, we believe that it is inerrant. And inerrant means this. I want to define this clearly. Inerrant means that the original autographs, what was originally written, has been perfectly translated into the manuals that we have today. That there's no lost in translation. That it is perfect from the original autographs to the manuscripts. That the original autographs, the original writings by these people did not say, well, God's not good, and then somehow we translated that to God is good. That, that Jesus was not God, but somewhere in the translation became Jesus is God. No. That through the power of the Holy Spirit, that that translation has been perfect. And, and really what we find in archaeology is that confirms that more and more. That the, that the translation from the original autographs to the manuscripts that we have today are exactly the same. There's not a change in translation. You see, the Bible is not salvation. The message of the Bible is salvation. The Bible is not salvation, its message is. Let me help us understand it like this. If you were in med school and you were gonna be a brain surgeon, you would have, I would hope, books and books and books to teach you how to walk into an operating room, 
crack someone's head open, stick a knife in there, do some stuff, <laughs> and they walk out better than they were before, right? You would learn how to do that, but those books themselves would never do that. Those books are not going to save anybody. It is the content which is within those books. And the only way that that content becomes transformative is when you read it, when you study it, and when you apply it to your life. Then you can walk into an operating room and do amazing things. You see, the Bible is not salvation. It leads us to the place of salvation. And so when we find problems with the Bible, all of a sudden we, we can look at them and objectively go, okay, does this, does this still leading me to salvation? Well, of course it is. Has the message changed? No. Is it still inspired? Yes. Is there some human perspective in the middle of it? Okay, yeah, there is, of course. But yet it is still salvation. That has not changed. That does not change. So the real question is, what do you do with it? The real question is, is if we can establish that this really is inspired by God, not because we say so, because God has revealed this to us, and that this is truly God speaking to us, then now the question is, what do you do with it? Because it says a lot of things, and it leads us to Jesus. And so you can try to pick it apart all you want, but at the end of the day, people have been doing that for thousands of years. They are gone, and it is still here. And the message has not changed. I love how David talks about Scripture. I want to end with this. Psalm 119, 97 through 105. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules. For you have taught me how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I gain understanding. Therefore I hate every evil or every false way. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. What do you do with the word of God? Do you allow it to be a light to your feet, a lamp to your path? Is it to you sweeter than honey? Because if it, you allow it to be a lamp and a light to you, it will lead you to the throne room of God. It will lead you to the cross. It will lead you to the person of, salva person of salvation, Jesus. It will lead you to restoration. It will lead you to holiness. But what you do with it is completely up to you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. God, thank you that you inspired people of this earth. God, to write down your precepts, to write down your law, to write down your truth. God, that they were completely 
100% inspired by you, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and that we can trust it. God, thank you for your truth in our life. Thank you that you are God. Thank you that you are holy. Thank you that you are majestic. And thank you that you love us, that you sacrifice for us that you desire restoration with your people. God, and that truth does not change. Lord, we, we come before you and we trust your word. God, we trust the entirety of our souls, our eternity, God, to your word. Lord, I pray that there's people in here who are struggling to believe this truth, God, that your Holy Spirit would open their eyes and allow it to become a light to their feet and a lamp to their path. Amen.